Sambhutasa Bhagavato Harahato Sama Sambuddhasa Namotasa Bhagavato Harahato Sama Sambuddhasa Namotasa Bhagavato Harahato Sama Sambuddhasa Buddhang Dhammang Sanghang Namasami So tonight Q&A. Maybe I can uh, get a little bit more light. Okay, this box has got a couple of questions in it. I've also got the questions that accumulated yesterday. question is, what are the qualities of enlightenment? Hmm. Well, the Buddha used a lot of terms. He called it the release of the end of suffering, the this, this ceasing of clinging, the end of suffering through clinging no more, um, several other terms like the end of the asavas, which are the, the roots of delusion, greed, hatred, and delusion, um, the uprooting of those things, the um, the end of This one's a little obscure, but something like the end of uh, Nama Rupa. So we were talking about Nama Rupa the other night. I think the way to take that one is the end of being fooled by Nama Rupa. Because your body's still here and your concepts are still here, but um, you no longer presume that they're representative of the truth. Are you not hearing so well? Okay. Is it on? It is on. Oh. Can you hear it? Testing, one, two, three. Let me try this. Sometimes adjusting the microphone makes a difference, yeah? Okay. You hearing okay? Yeah? All right. Um, qualities of enlightenment, uh, maybe more contemporary or more, more accessible. Um, okay, when I think about monks and nuns that I've met, that I that I believe are enlightened, or uh, it comes in degrees. And so there's um, people who are a little bit of enlightenment going on. Um, they have a kind of a basically content and happy demeanor. They're not uh, 
they're not very attached to their views and opinions. They seem kind of light about everything. Everything's kind of okay. Everything's kind of light. And, um, but it's subtle. It's like there's not that much difference between them and just a normally happy person. And it only comes out when, when sort of under stress, push comes to shove. Uh, there's a health crisis or something. Uh, their mind's very stable, uh, reacts to it very appropriately. People who, are, who seem to be more enlightened can sometimes be quite, uh, have a really kind of outrageous sense of, sense of humor almost. Like they, they're beyond conventions, right? So they don't, they don't take any of the normal social conventions with anything like the seriousness of ordinary people. And they have all kinds of fun with, with language, with uh, um, situations. They're very spontaneous. Uh, and so there's a kind of, you can perceive a kind of inner freedom. Uh, uh, like they're not burdened by their life. They're not burdened by the problems that life presents. Uh, they, they, they can take seriously what is serious. Um, they, can, they can be quite ferocious when the situation seems to call for it. But for the most part, when things are okay, they're just, they seem to be having a good time. Um, they're certainly not depressed. They're certainly not sad. They're certainly not um, indifferent to the suffering of others. They're the opposite of all those things. They're fully engaged. They're completely unafraid of anything. They're not afraid of death. They're not afraid of you. They're not afraid of their other people in their community. Um, uh, they're not afraid to make changes. They're just completely responsive to the to the immediate moment. They don't worry about the past. They don't worry about the future. They just stay right here, right now, constantly responding to whatever is coming up. And at the same time, if they want to. They can they can plan circles around most people. Like they can they, they don't get tangled up in the details. They look at the big picture. If they've got to plan like a complicated trip, or they have to uh, work out uh, the coordination of a bunch of events in order to make something happen, um, they're completely stress free about it, and they're really efficient. And when it's done, they just drop it. Uh, don't we all wish we could be like that? <laughs> So, you know, wake up in the morning, happy, happy, oh, it's time for my daughter's wedding, plan the wedding, happy, happy, no stress, no turmoil. If it doesn't work out, it's okay. Like, <laughs> like there just isn't, there's no kind of like personal investment in the outcome of things. But there is the devotion to making things as, as right as they can be made. And then there's a complete letting go. Uh, a letting go of like uh, personal investment in the outcome of things. Do the best that you can. If it doesn't work out the way you want it, that's life. That's how things are, right? You can't, you can't actually control the things. All you can do is do your best. And uh, also the people that seem to, be, uh, seem to me to be very enlightened um, were treasured by their communities. They are um, uh, they really only interested about talking about things that somehow or another bear on Dhamma, right? So... Anything that's kind of trivia or whatever is very boring to them. Um, they talk about people and personalities in the context of Dhamma themes, typically. So um, our own human foolishness, how it gets us into trouble, uh, can be very amusing, and it's uh, illustrating principles of Dhamma. Um, 
So I guess that would be my answer to that question. Yes? That's plenty. That's plenty. Great. All right. Let's move on to the next question. <laughs> Given that everything is predicated on what went before. So here's another question. Given that everything is predicated on what went before, do we ever make any decisions? In quotes. And so we ever make any decisions? This is a question about free will. You could say free will or, or whether or not there is such a thing as personal will or personal decision-making given that everything seems to be coming out of this matrix of comma and causes and conditions over which we have no control. We don't really own these causes and conditions. They just... That's a good question, right? But it's, an un, it's, it's a kind of a question, uh, almost a philosophical question. It's the sort of question that the Buddha would typically sort of try to clarify or um, ask a counter question to see what the questioner is getting at. And I'm not that skillful, so <clears throat> I'll just take my best shot. In practice, we are always making decisions, and we can experience ourselves as agents who have volition and make decisions. So you can choose to eat this second piece of toast or not. Right? And you kind of know that you can do this. Uh, this is conventional, and this is the way that we ordinarily experience our minds uh, going through our lives or making decisions. When you practice Dhamma, and you start practicing meditation, and you start paying more attention to how the mind makes decisions, you start to see that more most of your decisions are driven by uh, what you did before, like your habits and your conditioning and uh, your uh, the, the pleasure pain principle. So if pleasure is there, then there's tends to be the mind wants more of it. And if there's pain, the mind wants less of it. So you can see that a lot of your decision making is being sort of made for you by circumstances. And then you simply take responsibility for it. You sort of own the decision uh, ex post facto, as it were. And then you start to wondering, geez, am I making any decisions in all of this? Right? Uh, I would say that, that uh, the question ultimately answers itself through practice. You see what decision-making actually is made of. You see its conditioned nature, and you also see its uncertain nature, that it isn't deterministic. Like it isn't sort of uh, set in stone, um, and at the same time, there are these causes and conditions. So uh, the, the question, that kind of a question, do we ever make decisions, um, is coming from uh, this, or this normal perspective that we have that questions like this have a kind of yes or no answer. That they, they, there's an either or. Uh, you know, either we are free agents or we have no free will at all. We're just merely victims of circumstance. And so conventional reality says we're free agents and we, we, we take full responsibility for our decisions. Investigation shows us that decisions aren't quite what we thought they were. And I think we, you, you eventually arrive at a place where you realize that, yes, every decision is conditioned. And that you can choose to put in the causes and conditions that create better decisions in the future. So you do have agency, but you don't have total agency. 
Right? There is determinate. There is determining or causal factors, but they are not utterly deterministic. So there's this kind of middle way quality to it. I would say the short answer is that the, the, the only place where you really have free will is when you're choosing where to put your attention. When your attention is being dragged around by circumstances, you, know, you get up in the morning and there's a couple pieces of toast there and so you start putting it in your mouth, you're not thinking about what you're attending to. Your attention just gets grabbed by whatever's arising and you simply are kind of reacting to it. When you're fully aware and sort of self-possessed and mindful, and you're choosing where to put your attention, like you're putting your attention on your meditation object, then you're kind of in the driver's seat, you could say. Now, you could kind of start taking that apart and say, well, but you know, the reason I'm making that decision is because of the causal conditions of me being interested in Dhamma, which came from my suffering, which you, know, you can kind of work it back and see that, uh, I don't know what's going on here. <laughs> but don't, don't tangle yourself up, because this is actually trying to pick apart the threads of Kama. Right? And the Buddha said that, that the threads of Kama are difficult, they're, they're complicated. Uh, anybody who tries to pick apart the threads of Kama uh, will simply drive themselves mad. So it's a waste of time. The uh, decision-making is something that we have to do, and if you have a wholesome attitude towards it, the fact that it's not completely under your control won't be a problem. I hope that helps. Let's see. What do we got here? This one's going to require glasses. Please talk about the following verses of our chanting book, teaching on mindfulness and breathing. When the four foundations of mindfulness are developed, they fulfill the seven factors of awakening. When the seven factors of awakening are developed, they fulfill <coughs> true knowledge and deliverance. Okay, well this is a pretty, pretty deep question. When the four foundations of mindfulness are developed, so we just let's review very briefly these four foundations of mindfulness. So this is one of the central teachings that the Buddha gave about how to practice, what exactly to do when you're meditating. In the in the introduction, introductory paragraph in that sutta, the Buddha says, "This is uh, the singular way, or the." one way path or some people uh, translate the phrase as this is the only way although I think that's a little too narrow but this is the way the singular way like a, a particularly uh, straightforward way that only leads to enlightenment these four foundations of mindfulness satipatthana the four foundations are mindfulness of the body in the body, mindfulness of feeling in feeling, mindfulness of the mind in mind, and mindfulness of dhamma in dhammas, or phenomena in phenomena is another translation of that last section. So these are, are said to be the four collections of teachings about um, particular focuses of mindfulness or foundations of mindfulness. And there's a little controversy about exactly what that means. But let's just 
stick to the idea that there are these four principal realms or principal um, areas of investigation for mindfulness to, to dwell in. The first one being mindfulness of the body. And mindfulness of breathing is a mindfulness of the body topic. It's a, it's a key meditation technique and it's a basis for investigating the true nature of the body. But mindfulness of the body also includes uh, additional teachings on things like um, mindfulness of ones, how the body is dispositioned, how it's like what's, what its posture is right now, mindfulness of the body as it's moving, knowing what your limbs are doing, um, mindfulness of the four elements, the four element quality of the body. So the, the, ex, the experience of hardness, softness, flowing, uh, contraction, um, heat, cold, these are all considered to be like parts of the four elements. And, note, and reflecting that just as there's hardness in this body, there's hardness exterior to the body as well, and seeing that it's just the same hardness. So this is a kind of reflection that sets the body in the context of the larger physical world and sees that there really isn't a separation when it comes to these four elements. Um, there's a lot, of, a lot of things to reflect on just that much. Uh, you could spend a lot of time just doing one of these exercises. Um, from there, the teaching goes on to teach about mindfulness of feeling. So feeling is said to be these three, uh, you could call them affective aspects of experience. Pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. So all experience has one of these three. Most of it's probably just neutral. The Buddha further subdivides it into um, worldly and unworldly. So uh, you know, mindfully, the practitioner knows I am feeling a pleasant worldly feeling or when feeling an unpleasant worldly feeling he or she knows I am feeling an unpleasant worldly feeling and then he goes through pleasant unpleasant neutral for worldly and pleasant unpleasant and neutral for unworldly well, what are unworldly feelings feelings like um, uh, meditating and, and having uh, the, the meditation object become very smooth and kind of delicious, and there's a pleasant feeling that arises. That's an un, that's a pleasant, unworldly feeling. And if you get seduced by that feeling, then you get lost in it, and you're not meditating properly. You're not you're not mindful. So the foundations of mindfulness are asking us to know exactly what's happening and be able to, in effect, to say what it is that's happening. So feeling a pleasant unworldly feeling, the practitioner knows, I am feeling a pleasant, unworldly feeling. So you don't necessarily have to recite those sentences in your head, but the idea is that when you're doing these practices, you know exactly what it is that you're experiencing right now, to the point where you could say what it is. So it's not vague at all, it's very clear. And that's what mindfulness is about in this teaching. From feeling, he moves on to uh, mindfulness of mind. So the mindfulness of mind teaching can, includes um, knowing a deluded mind as a deluded mind, and knowing a uh, calm mind as a calm mind, knowing a uh, exalted mind as exalted, knowing a, a, a angry mind as angry, just knowing like all these different mind states that are possible to occur during the course of an ordinary meditation retreat. Probably you've seen most of them already. Um, if the mind state comes and goes and you never know it, then you didn't, you didn't 
uh, get a chance to observe it correctly. So um, experiencing a, a mind imbued with aversion, the practitioner knows, I am experiencing the mind imbued with aversion. Right? Just like that. So if aversion is coming up in the mind, we simply know that's what's happening. And we don't, it doesn't go any further than that. It's all you have to do is just know that's what's happening. Um, and then that, that same reflection for every one of these other mind states in the list of, uh, that he includes is something like a dozen or so different mind states that he uses to illustrate this principle of knowing that the mind can be in a wholesome state or an unwholesome state. It can be in a worldly state or it can be in some sort of exalted, nearly uh, near to liberation state. But every state is just a state, and your job is to simply know what's happening right now. Right? So that's, that's like, when you're doing that, you're doing it right. From there, he moves on to mindfulness of dhammas and dhammas, or phenomena and phenomena. And um, here he includes uh, the, f the five hindrances, the four, the, the four noble truths, um, and the other categories of dhamma like that. Um, and he's, he's uh, uh, suggesting, you could say, the way this is, is understood, is that as your meditation progresses and as you kind of get towards the upper end of practice, um, whatever it is that you're knowing, you can see that um, the, whatever has arisen is um, is potentially obstructive if it's seen as something worth grabbing onto, and it's potentially uh, a source of liberation if it's seen with wisdom. So everything that arises has this kind of um, potential for the mind to be seen correctly or seen incorrectly, and so you're kind of seeing everything in terms of dhamma rather than in terms of content or in terms of what it means to me. You're just seeing that you're kind of seeing the four noble truths arising and passing away in all phenomena and other uh, Dhamma categories. So each one of these four um, foundations of mindfulness, when they're when they're developed, um, they're said to fulfill the seven factors of awakening. So there's these seven factors of awakening. Uh, they're called the Bojangas. Bojango Satisangato Dhammanamuchayotata Viryan Piti Pasadi Bojanga Tatata Bare Samadupeka Bojanga Satete Sabana I'm getting it screwed up now. But that's the, the Pali chant around these Bojangos. And so it includes these factors of you could say, mental conditioning. So in ordinary, ordinarily our mind is conditioned by greed, hatred, and delusion, um, experience, contact with the world, and it makes the mind have this different kind of weather that we observe, and we see various mind states coming and going. Um, as, these, as, we, as practice proceeds, these factors, which include mindfulness, uh, uh, investigation of... <coughs> Investigation of phenomena, Dhamma Vichaya, investigation of Dhamma, which is like the mind's inclination to look into things and to try to see how it is that they relate to the Buddha's teachings. 
So like looking at things and, and going, you know, seeing like a rising and passing away or seeing dukkha or seeing um, uh, the mind's tendency to grasp, right? And seeing, knowing that grasping leads to suffering. Like when, when the, the doctrine is sort of infusing the way that you're looking at things, then uh, part of the mind is always reflecting on the Dhamma uh, quality and is willing to go look and see if there's anything in there. Uh, that's relevant to that question. So uh, mindfulness, uh, uh, investigation, uh, uh, energy, so vigor of, of, of practice, um, uh, rapture, which is a kind of a mental uh, quality of, of, you could say, passionate interest, like being really into it, right? Um, uh, Pasadi, which is uh, something like, hmm, unperturbability, un- un- like a kind of a steadiness, uh, tranquility, but not boredom, not being laid back, not being sleepy, but just like a kind of calm, uh, uh, clear ability to observe without being pushed around by phenomena. Um, let's see what comes after Pesati. What's that? Concentration. Concentration, that's right. So uh, Samadhi, of course, is, con- is concentration or collectedness of mind. So they, you can sort of see how that's related to Pesati, related to to um, Piti, so these factors have to do with the development of, of concentration itself. Concentration itself develops. And um, equanimity, upeka, is uh, one of the factors. It's, um, it's uh, you, you could say that upeka is the quality of mind which is so accepting that even the possibility of the demise of the treasured self is going to be okay. Like it's it's not it's not disturbed by things. It doesn't it doesn't fear. It doesn't grasp. It's just um, equanimous in the midst of what's happening in meditation. So this equanimity is a, a factor that's necessary for the mind to have. You could say the stability and the courage to look really deeply into what's going on here in the present moment. So these factors of enlightenment um, need to come to a certain kind of developmental maturity. And when they do, the stage is set. Uh, as long as the meditator keeps meditating, when those enlightenment factors are mature and they're balanced, um, for the mind to basically uh, see phenomena come up and see its emptiness. And in seeing its emptiness, let go. And in letting go, you could say make the breakthrough to the Dhamma, make the breakthrough to Nibbana, see the truth, uh, pierce the veil, taste the flavor that the Buddha tastes, and know for yourself the truth. So uh, this, this is called awakening when the mind's when the mind goes there. You cannot make it happen, but what you can do is put in place 
the causes and conditions for it to happen. You can encourage their, their development. So the four foundations of mindfulness, when they're fully practiced and fully developed, these factors develop alongside them. So the ability to practice the four foundations of mindfulness um, operates in concert with the development of these seven factors of awakening. Um, so what you're doing is you're pointing your mind at appropriate objects. You're, you're seeing them correctly with the kind of the vision of Dhamma. So you're not grasping at objects as potential sources of gratification or potential problems. You're simply seeing them arising and passing away. You're understanding their true nature. And as you're doing so, your concentration is improving, your mindfulness is improving, the continuity of your practice is improving, and your sense of courage is improving, your sense of like everything's acceptable, everything is, the truth is, is marvelous to see, and it's worth seeing, and I want to see it. And so the mind's drive to get down to the, to the real bottom of this uh, tangle. Like we're kind of entangled in the world, we're entangled in our concepts. So the mind's drive to do that becomes more and more pronounced. And so you're, you're looking at your objects with, with more and more wholeheartedness and less and less distractibility. And at a certain point, the factors all kind of ripen and the mind does something unusual. It sees clearly for just a moment. And then awakening dawns. So the... Uh, one knows for oneself that everything that has the nature to arise has the nature to pass away, just like Venerable Kondanya. And when these factors of awakening get that ripe, the last step is they fulfill true knowledge and deliverance. And of course, awakening is this true knowledge and deliverance. So up until that point, the knowledge that we have is the knowledge as best we can see it through our um, still as yet somewhat deluded minds concentrating and focusing and being mindful of our meditation objects as the factors of awakening are kind of coming to maturity. And then finally, when everything's just right, our, we'll see it more deeply. We'll see more like, oh, that's what he's talking about. That's what the Buddha's talking about. This is what he means by dukkha, anicca, anatta. All these three characteristics are, are there. And they're real, they're true, they're relevant there. And the, a deeper, deeper understanding of what that's pointing to, those phrases, those terms are pointing to. You've been examining it in a way when you're looking, as you're approaching that point, but the depth of your understanding can just go so much deeper. You, you can't quite appreciate it until you see it. So when that deepening happens, that's called uh, true knowledge. And when that true knowledge arises, um, because you've seen something that you never really saw before, you've understood something that wasn't understood before, when you look back at the rest of your uh, experience, or you look back at your life, or you look, look at your current situation, it looks different to you because now you're looking at it from a slightly different perspective. You understand more deeply what's been going on all this time. Right? And this is when, like, the... Uh, uh, the blind man becomes enraged by the guy who sold him the dirty cloth, right? It's because now you see, oh, this is what's been happening all this time. This is why there's all been all this suffering. Right? So when that gets seen, um, you could say that's deliverance. You can never really be fooled again the way you were before. 
being fooled before, you had no way out. Once you've seen the truth, okay, say you get fooled again in the future, but you're going you're gonna to remember, oh, this is, this is just the mind getting fooled. Right? You can't really be fully, you, can't, you can no longer be completely fooled by the khandas and taking them to be self. Right? It's just the mind knows better. You know better. And that sets the stage for you to continue your practice and continue developing and see more deeply because the, these, this knowledge and deliverance can go deeper and deeper and deeper, more and more profound. Uh, it's, not, it's not an all or nothing kind of an affair. It's a, the Buddha called it a gradual training. Okay. Let's see what's next. Would you please discuss Satipatthana practices? Haha, I did that one already. Verses on sharing and aspiration. In every kind of birth, may I have an upright mind. Can birth, in this case, be interpreted as an intentional act, as a habitual and skillful action would come from delusion? Hmm. I'm not sure I completely understand that question. Um, I'll just take a riff on it, um, this verses on sharing and aspiration. Um, it's, it's a later composition, um, and it's very popular because it, it has a lot of uplifting, uh, generous-hearted uh, uh, expressions of, of wanting to share the goodness of our practice. In every kind of birth may I have an upright mind is a wish, I think, in a conventional sense, um, it's, it's like an affirmation of belief in the Buddhist teaching on the doctrine of rebirth. And in this tradition that I'm in, that we're kind of participating in here, uh, Theravada Buddhism coming out of Thailand, uh, rebirth is taken pretty seriously. Um, but me as a Westerner, it uh, doesn't do that much for me. And I, I, I don't really care that much. <laughs> because if I had births in the, in the past, um, I must have done something skillful that allowed me to arrive here in this condition where I'm practicing the Dhamma. So, okay, uh, that, that's great. But I don't remember. And I, like, I don't have access to that, to the knowledge of that previous birth. And if it's, so the, the Buddha has this great teaching about this, this doctrine of birth and the doubt that people have around it. Um, and it's, it's his version uh, of Pascal's wager. So Pascal's, Pascal was this philosopher in Europe, and he says, you know, it's it's um, it's kind of a wager that we make when we decide to believe in God or not, or believe in life after death, or believe in heaven and hell. Um, if you say, if you gamble that it's not true, and then you just live heedlessly and you commit all kinds of sins, um, well, it'll turn out one of two ways. It'll either be the case that um, you're right and it's just annihilation after you die. In which case, okay, you won, but you're not there to enjoy it. <laughs> uh, or uh, you're wrong, right? And there is heaven and hell, and there is judgment, and you've just wasted your life, and now you have to suffer accordingly. So it's better to live your life as though you believed in heaven and hell and life after death, because then you'll conduct yourself in a wholesome way, and at the end, when it's time to die, if it turns out that you're wrong, 
and annihilation is the end, well, no loss, right? Because you're not even there to know that you you were you gambled, you lost. And if you're right um, that there is heaven and hell and judgment and all this, then of course you've lived your life very skillfully with this, having made this gamble that that's how it's going to turn out. Big payoff, right? You get to go to heaven. The Buddha put it very similarly, right? He says um, a gambler who gambles on there not being life after death. On there being no such thing as rebirth, uh, lives heedlessly, wastes his life, and in that, and if he's wrong, if he's wrong, um, he's annihilated. Or sorry, if he's correct, he's annihilated, and if he's wrong, he suffers. And in that sense, he's made a double unlucky throw. Right? Like, like a throw of the dice, and it's, it's not only is it, did you get a bad number, but you get a bad number twice. And by the, he, he says, someone who gambles on rebirth as being a true doctrine and lives his life accordingly um, makes a double lucky throw, right? Because even in this very life, someone who lives their life that way is admired, is supported, is socially well-connected, is uh, confident in all encounters with other human beings, is praised by the wise. So living a wholesome life is, is a good thing to do in this life for the very benefits of this life. And if there's rebirth, you're going you're gonna to win on that count too. So you win on both counts. And if you live unskillfully, then you lose on both counts. You lose in this life and you lose in the next life. So in every kind of birth, may I have an upright mind. That is a, uh, a kind of a conventional um, affirmation of, of the belief in rebirth, like sort of someone who's saying, okay, I'm, I'm going to go for the double lucky throw. Uh, may I, I'm going to develop an upright mind in this life, and in future lives, may I also continue to have an upright mind. So it's kind of a wish for one's own welfare, so that one may continue practicing and may continue uh, being of benefit both to oneself and others, ideally to come into a state of enlightenment sooner rather than later. So uh, that's my understanding of that phrase. Let's see what else is in here. Bottom of the neglected. What is what is the deathless? Can you explain this clearly? Okay, that's you guys aren't letting me off early. I was thinking you were gonna ask me questions like, well, you know, why does the Buddhist statue have long earlobes? Or something like that. Why is that? <laughs> oh, you want that one instead? Okay. <laughs> so the long earlobes. What's that? How do they become long? They become long? So the, the the idea here is the Buddha Rupa isn't a, a representation of a historical personage. It's a collection of symbols that represents a lot of concepts or notions, beliefs and ideals that are part of, let's call it, Buddhist religion. Right? There's, in the world, there's kind of two kinds of Buddhism. There's Buddhist religion, which is practices, rituals, beliefs, cultural w ways um, where people um, identify themselves, I'm a Buddhist, I'm born in a Buddhist country, my family's Buddhist. And so when they fill out the... Uh, form at the recruitment office and ask them what their religion is, they write down Buddhist. Um, and they might have heard things like the Four Noble Truths and the, you know, the, 
the three, the triple gem, they might have a lot of these kind of phrases and maybe concepts floating around in their head. But chances are, like most cultural Buddhists, they don't really, they don't meditate, they don't practice, they don't go on retreat. It's too much trouble, they're busy, they're having a life, you know. They're sure that because they're Buddhist and they, they go to the to the monastery or the, to the temple and make offerings to the monks on Magapuja and on Katina, they're headed for a good rebirth. And probably they're right. right? So it's like it's good enough. There's nothing wrong with that. And whole like whole cultures have, have constructed their way of living around the Buddhist teachings and created this kind of cultural Buddhism, which is both cultural and religious. Uh, it's, it's by analogy the same sort of thing that happened in Europe around Christianity. Um, that's one kind of Buddhism. Right? And it, that kind of Buddhism is, is the vehicle, you could say, through time in which the other kind of Buddhism has been carried along. The other kind of Buddhism I call the Buddha Dhamma. Right? This is the teaching of the Buddha, and the teaching of the Buddha is meant to be practiced. So that understanding will arise. So whether you bow three times or not, or whether you chant or not, or whether you um, light the incense, go to temple on the right days, say the right phrases, um, is not so important. What's important is um, abandoning the unwholesome, cultivating the wholesome, purifying the mind, and deepening your understanding until enlightenment itself dawns. So that's what the Buddha Dhamma is about, is coming to understand um, what are the causes of suffering and how to abandon those causes of suffering so that happiness can arise. True, durable happiness that doesn't rely on external conditions. So um, coming back to the Buddha Rupa, the Buddha Rupa represents a whole bunch of these notions about this, the qualities of enlightenment and the kinds of things that bring about enlightenment. So the, the long earlobes are because the Buddha Rupa, the Buddha was a, um, a, a high-status uh, son of a high-status family uh, in, uh, in his culture at the time. He, the, the short way of putting it is he was the prince. His father was the king. Not really. <laughs> but he doesn't actually say that about himself. But he does say that his family was a leading family in this republic, uh, of the uh, leading family of the Sakya clan, and that his father was very wealthy. His family was very wealthy. The Sakya clan were a warrior clan, and so the, the men were all trained in the arts of warfare, which is part of the reason the Buddha is constantly using war analogies. Nowadays we use sports analogies. But the, the Buddha liked to use war analogies. So he would talk about things like training war elephants, being struck by a dart on the battlefield, etc. So he had all these kinds of great analogies that he used that were based on his training and his experience growing up and his understanding of the world as a, as a member of the warrior caste, part of the Sakyan clan. His father was so wealthy that he had three uh, castles three dwellings, one for the hot season, one for the cool season, one for the rainy season, that he would spend uh, those seasons in each one of these different dwellings. And he was raised in such luxury that during the rainy season, for example, he'd go into the rainy season uh, castle, spend the entire rainy season without ever coming out, being entertained by musicians the entire time, not one among whom was a man. <laughs> <laughs> 
So uh, he was having a really good time. And, you know, he's being raised in this kind of lap of luxury. He's talking about how luxurious his life was before he became an ascetic. And wealthy people at that time in India, and even still today, would wear earrings to display their wealth, both men and women. You put enough weight in your ear, eventually you get stretched out. So long earlobes is a, is a sign of prosperity and wealth. The fact that there's no earring is a sign of renunciation. So the long earlobes represent wealth renounced as a principle of enlightenment, like abandoning the, the, the lures of the world and turning towards uh, simplicity, contentment, doing, making, uh, making life as simple as possible so that you can focus on Dhamma practice. What was that other question? <laughs> so that's why the long earlobes are there. So every one of the things that you see in the Buddha Rupa that looks like a little puzzling, um, has a story like this behind it. Uh, the other one was like, oh, please explain the deathless. Oh. <laughs> Clearly. <laughs> okay. Uh, I can put that one back in the box and come back to it later. Um, let me think about it. Let's In our morning chants, a salutation to the triple gem. There's a line, the five focuses of the grasping mind. Please explain and clarify. Let's see. So when we're doing the salutation to the triple gem, um, uh, in the extended version, there's this phrase that um, is taken out of the Dhammachakapavatana Sutta. And um, so I spoke about the, this is called the turning of the wheel of the Dhamma, the sutta about the turning of the wheel of the Dhamma, Dhamma Chaka Pawatana. So Dhamma uh, Chaka Pawatana. Dhamma Chaka is the Dhamma wheel. And uh, Pawatana is like setting in motion, making it go. So the, 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 the sutta on the turning, the setting in motion, the wheel of the Dhamma is a card, called the Cardinal Sutta. It's one of the ones that monks typically typically memorize, and uh, it uh, goes through the, the Buddha's what's believed to be or what's thought to be the Buddha's original teaching, initial teaching to the five ascetics um, that started them off on the path to enlightenment. And uh, so it's a much loved and much celebrated sutta. And in that sutta, he goes into a little bit of detail about what he means by the four noble truths. So in the section on the first noble truth, he, he says, this is the first noble truth. Uh, um, this bhikkhus is the noble truth of dukkha. Birth is dukkha, aging is dukkha, death is dukkha. Sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief, and despair are dukkha. Not to get what one wants is dukkha. Being associated with, with what one dislikes is dukkha. Being separated from what one likes is dukkha. In brief, the five focuses of the grasping mind are dukkha. And then he moves on to the second noble truth. So coming back to just kind of sticking with the first noble truth here for a second, that last little phrase is a little 
not so clear, right? We know at birth, aging, and death, or at least we have some idea what that means, sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief, and despair. We all have experience with these things. Uh, being joined with what you don't like, being separated from what you like, not getting what you want. They're all said to be dukkha, right? So the word dukkha can be picked out, you could say, can be understood just from these examples rather than translating it into a word like suffering or unsatisfactoriness or something like that. You can just sort of go, okay, these, these things the Buddha is calling them all, this, he's using this term dukkha to point to them. And then there's this last one, the five focuses of the grasping mind. What the heck is that? Right? So, because um, it's not obvious on the face of it. Um, so in many other suttas throughout the teaching, the Buddha does talk about these five focuses of the grasping mind, and you've heard of them already. They're also called the five aggregates. <clears throat> the aggregate of form, the aggregate of feeling, the aggregate of perception, the aggregate of mental formations, and the aggregate of consciousness. And I spoke about a couple of these when we were talking about uh, the, uh, the, the links of dependent origination. So. Um, uh, because there's contact, there's feeling. The feeling is Vedana, that's the second of the, the, the five aggregates. Uh, form is said to be uh, the four great elements and all form derived from the four great elements and it's often understood to be synonymous with the physical body. So um, the form body is something that the mind grasps at. We think that our body is ours, we think that it's who we are. So this is a focus of the grasping mind. The feelings that we experience when we encounter the world are pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral. We take them very personally. Right? We like pleasant, we dislike unpleasant. We, we're constantly, our minds tend to get embroiled in liking things and disliking things. And that liking and disliking is coming from pleasant and unpleasant. And then being deluded about things is coming from this neutral feeling where we don't really care because we don't, we don't find it interesting at all. Unpleasant is interesting. We want it to go away. Pleasant is interesting. We want to keep it. But the truth is, whatever you like, you're going to be separated from. And whatever you don't like, you're going to be joined with. And those are both forms of dukkha that the Buddha spoke about earlier. But... But pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral, the feeling I read it, is something that the mind grasps at. So we, we get embroiled with liking and disliking the things of the world. The perception group, like that third kind of perception, is the way, you could say, the way that we look at things. So there's this kind of basic level of perception where I hold up this object and you recognize it as a bell. And you hear it and you recognize the sound as the sound of a bell. So you're the function of your brain or your mind that allows you to know what things are. Uh, maybe the first time you see something, you don't quite know what it is. But then as you look at it for a while, you start to see, oh, it's a round thing that goes on tops of cups, right? So perception is a thing that, that takes ambiguity and removes ambiguity and reveals uh, something that seems solid and real, something that's kind of trustworthy, something substantial. That's a perception. We like our perceptions. We don't like ambiguity. We don't like uncertainty. We don't like uh, doubt. We like to know what's happening. Uh, so the man who's getting ready to move that rubbish heap, 
who catches a glance, a glimpse of something sparkly on there. At first, his perception doesn't know what it is, and so he aims his attention at it, and he starts gathering data by looking at it. And pretty soon, his his brain assembles or his perception assembles uh, uh, this perception of it's a it's a gem, it's valuable. And so at that point, his next aggregate starts operating, the aggregate of sankharas, or mental formations. So the aggregate of perception is something that we use all the time to operate in the world, but it's also the basis for the mind's grasping at things. So we, we can't grasp at the gem unless we can perceive the gem. But, without, but once we perceive something, then if it's pleasant, we're likely to grasp at it, and if it's unpleasant, we're likely to push it away. So this is one of the focuses of the grasping mind. The sankharas that come after the man recognizes that it's a gem, that it's valuable, and he starts thinking about, well, geez, what kind of a gem is it? Is it a diamond? Is it a ruby? And he starts getting more into it, and like, well, how much is this thing worth? I wonder if, if I could pawn it at the local shop, or and if it belongs to somebody. What if they come looking for it? Geez, they might... What if thieves find out that I have this thing? Holy smokes. You know, he starts, so his mind goes on and on and on, kind of belaboring this gem. This is, uh, the Buddha has a term for this. It's called papancha, or elaboration. Right? So the mind goes spinning off, and we all know what this is like, right? because we've been meditating. We've seen our mind spin off, thinking about things endlessly. So this, this spinning thing where the mind uh, creates an object, uh, like the perception of a gem, and then based on that object, it creates a perception of value, then it creates a perception of a problem, then it creates a perception of opportunity, then it creates a perception of... It starts generating its own internal perceptions. It doesn't even need the outside world anymore. At that moment, he could close his eyes and just dream about his gem. Right? So the mind generating objects, this is... Um, the objects that are there are called sankharas. They're mental fabrications. Sankaras. Mental fabrications, uh, uh, when, you, when you meditate, you might discover that mental fabrications are uh, a large percentage of what your mind does during ordinary life is generate mental fabrications, generate sankaras. So obviously the mind is focusing on it and the mind grasps at it. We think the mental fabrications are real, we think they're important, uh, we have a hard time letting them go. We get embroiled in our views and opinions. Views and opinions are mental fabrications. They're sankharas. And we take them to be real. We take them to be right. We take them to be mine. This is a focus of the grasping mind. The mind grasps at these things. The last one is said to be vijnana, consciousness. This is the last focus, of the last of those five focuses. And the Buddha defines consciousness as Eye consciousness, ear consciousness, nose consciousness, tongue consciousness, uh, body consciousness, and mind consciousness. And consciousness is understood to be, you could say, the whole cognitive mental apparatus in which a particular channel of information plays out. So when you look at something, like right now, your eyes are open, and if I hold this up and I ask you to look at it, when you start gazing at that, you can see it. And you could say that consciousness, seeing consciousness, is arising. At the same time, in the periphery of your vision, there is white objects 
that you're not paying attention to. As long as you're looking at this, the eye consciousness that's arising is generating images and impressions of this thing. But the light that's hitting your retina from other directions is conveying information that you're ignoring. So even though the eye is operating, most of it's not happening in consciousness. The only thing that's happening in consciousness is where the beam of attention goes. So wherever the beam of attention goes, whether it's the ear door, the eye door, the tongue, nose, or body door, or the mind door itself, that beam of attention generates a stream of consciousnesses, you could say. And so this flow of consciousnesses as you look at this thing, or as you think about it, it that would be uh, mind or consciousnesses. So you close your eyes and you think about that bell or that gem. Um, the, uh, whatever perceptions or objects that are happening are uh, being conveyed, you could say, by this, by this light, by this stream of, uh, or this theater of consciousness, this channel of consciousness. Notice that eye consciousness is somehow separate from ear consciousness. Ear consciousness is its own thing. You can't see sound. You can't hear light. You can't taste sound. You can't hear flavor. So each one of these consciousnesses has its own domain, which is separate from the others. And yet inside our minds, we assemble information from all four of these domains, or all six of these domains, and create um, seemingly solid real entities that have just a bunch of attributes like color and flavor and etc not to say that, that that conventionally speaking that's not true it is good enough for the world it's good enough for, for convention but these six different consciousnesses are something that the mind grasps at right we we look at things and we see beauty in them and then we grasp at those those things that we like right so we we, we need consciousness in order for perception to operate we need consciousness in order for sankaras to operate. Consciousness is like attending or part of every moment of experience. But it's only one of, it's always one of six kinds of consciousness. There isn't like a general purpose consciousness in which things arise in this understanding. There's just these six different channels. And part of the mind's job is to take these channels and integrate them into a seeming reality. And so it just looks at all, all six channels and runs around in circles, spends a lot of time in the mental channel, um, sewing things together, getting excited about them, then goes out to the other channels and gets more updates, comes back into the mental channel and spends more time. So we live most of our life in the mind or consciousness. I hope that helps. Okay. Okay, that was the five focuses of the grasping mind. Questions, huh? Making pretty good progress here. How are we doing on time? How long am I supposed to go? Like an hour? Something like that? You don't, we don't really know. Okay. You should try to end at nine. End at nine. Okay. We'll go just a little longer. In modern terms, what are the aspects of dukkha we might understand daily? I've seen various translations, including anxiety and depression. Hmm. So dukkha, uh, I hope I gave a, a, some, some bit of an answer to this earlier on when I talked about 
the definition that the Buddha gives of birth is dukkha, aging is dukkha, etc. Um, I like the word, the, the translation. You know, dukkha is kind of an uh, awkward word all by itself because English speakers often don't know what it means. Uh, uncertainty for me, or sorry, not uncertainty. Unsatisfactoriness is a pretty good approximation of it. Maybe a little more precise would be incapable of yielding satisfaction. So, uh, and so because it's incapable of yielding satisfaction, these things um, yield and said something like not satisfaction. They're unsatisfactory. And that, that unsatisfactoriness has a pretty broad range. It goes all the way from just like minor not liking it all the way up to extreme agony. Right? So birth, aging, and death can, can include a lot of unfortunate events. They're not satisfactory. They don't, um, you know, birth seems to hold a lot of promise. Right? So you got your whole life in front of you, and all these great things are going to happen, but you know, you're going to get bullied in school, and you're going to lose your lunchbox, and all kinds of things are going to happen that seem like uh, really painful. And um, uh, it's not, like, by itself, it's simply not capable of yielding lasting, durable happiness. It is a source of unsatisfactoriness. And for your parents as well. Like they, they thought it was great, maybe, but there are troubles, and there's troubles along the way. <laughs> so um, aging brings like all kinds of new opportunities, new development, new growth, but it's bringing us closer and closer to death and also the trouble along the way. And then death of course, itself, some people look forward to death. It's like, oh, this will, I can finally get this over with. You know, like they're looking forward to being annihilated. They don't, they don't really like living anymore. They want, they want out. And the Buddha says, it doesn't really work that way. <laughs> like, like even after death, okay, you're, there's, there's rebirth. Sorry, pal, you got to go through it again. So you, you keep having to face birth, aging, and death over and over and over again. And they can't, because they're cyclical and because they're coming and going and because they're impermanent, um, whatever gratification there is along the way, it's not lasting, right? So it, it can't be a source of durable satisfaction. It's not capable of yielding satisfaction by its very nature. Then the Buddha goes on and talks about what it feels like. So, so birth is dukkha, aging is dukkha, death is dukkha. What it feels like is sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief, and despair are dukkha. So that's like the affect. That's kind of what dukkha feels like. It's kind of heavy, it's dark, it's not fun, we don't like it. We wish it would stop. And then he uses, he uses almost exactly the way we would put it, you know. Being joined with what you don't like, having to put up with with jerks in the office or on the freeway, right? Um, having to be sick, uh, not getting the food that you like, uh, having your knees hurt while you're meditating. I mean, everything that you don't like that you wish would go away, source of unsatisfactoriness. Being separated from what you like is dukkha, right? So if you like something, you know, sorry. Like, you don't get to keep it, right? You never get to keep what you like. You get to enjoy it for a while, maybe. But if, you, if you're counting on it to yield lasting satisfaction, you're going to be disappointed, right? We do, that, we do that reflection, that chant, uh, all that is mine, beloved and pleasing, will become otherwise, will become separated from me. There's just no way out of that. 
even uh, our marriage rituals have that, you know, till death do us part. But death will do us part. There's just no way out. So uh, the, uh, the, the last one seems almost trivial. Second to the last one. Not to get what one wants is dukkha. But it's actually the worst one, right? Because all the things that you want are kind of uh, included in all those things, other things that you say are in dukkha. Like, we don't want to die, right? We want to just have fun. We want to have pleasure. We want. We don't want to have pain, suffering, sorrow, lamentation. We don't want to have uh, to be joined up with things that we don't like, and we don't want to lose the things that we like. So basically, all of our wants are the source of this constant flow of dukkha. And guess what wanting is? Another word for wanting is clinging and grasping, right? So not to get what one wants is dukkha. Clinging and grasping is the cause of this dukkha, right? It's actually the central one, right? And then the Buddha underscores this by saying in the very next, the, the last phrase, the five focuses of the grasping mind are dukkha. Or you could say the five focuses of the wanting mind are dukkha. So it's not that there's somehow we're, we're wrong or we're mistaken or we're doing it wrong when we want things or we grasp at things. The, that's not really the problem so much is we don't understand how grasping comes to be. We're grasping more or less out of habit because that seems how you do it. Right? In order to get what you want, you reach out into the world and you grab, on, grab hold of it. So, the, so our practices are meant to show us why we want things. Like we want things because they bring us pleasure. And why we want to get rid of things is because they bring us pain. But we, we can know that intellectually, but not really understand it viscerally. Right? So we have to see over and over again how the grasping mind decides that it needs to grasp or, or gets inspired to go grasping after things. We have to see over and over again how the grasping mind is holding very rigidly onto something, like an, an ideal or a belief about yourself, you know, a, a positive or negative, right? Um, that holding onto is helping to reify the experience of being a self. And we can't see that, and we can't do anything about it until we can see that the mind is actually grasping. Same thing goes for views and opinions and all the things that we cling to in all these different ways. So the, fi- the focuses of the grasping mind are where the action is when it comes to dukkha, and it's where we have to explore. That's what our meditation practices are all about. That's why we're doing the satipatthana. We're actually investigating the five focuses of the grasping mind and seeing how it is that they create dukkha. Right? So this, all, this, this teaching all comes together. It all kind of interpenetrates itself. There's all these different linkages that are implicit in almost everything. Okay, that was the five focuses of the grasping mind. Uh, doing pretty good. In our evening chanting service, we have recollections of the wholesome qualities of Buddha, Dhamma, Sangha. Let's see more about this. So we start off with, you know, Arahang, Sama, Sambuddha, Bhagawa, the Lord, the perfectly enlightened and blessed one. Buddhang. We're, we're, when we're, we're, we're reciting this material, 
um, these qualities of the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha. This is related to, I think, another question I spotted somewhere along the way, or maybe it came before, um, of the notion of this triple gem and taking refuge in the triple gem. So, like, just before I started the Dhamma talk, I said, Bhutang Dhammang Sanghang Namasami. I take refuge in the Buddha, Dhamma, and Sangha. So, the triple gem, maybe it's worth talking just a little bit about what that means, right? Um, and maybe what taking refuge means. Uh, ordinarily, before we become Buddhists, or maybe before we become followers of the Buddha Dhamma, um, like everybody else in the world who's ever lived, we take refuge in the things that we like. And we try to escape from the things that we don't like. We take refuge in family, friends, experiences, titles, uh, education, all the acquisitions of life. We take refuge in these things because, and we count on them to give us happiness, to, to make our life fulfilling, give it meaning. Uh, we're... That's, that's normal. That's, what, that's how the world works. And then the Buddha comes along and points out this unfortunate fact that well, birth is dukkha, aging is dukkha, death is dukkha, sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief, and despair, the five focuses of the grasping mind. They cannot yield lasting satisfaction. All they can yield is a bunch of experiences that the mind grasps at and never gets to keep. So it's all slipping through our fingers all the time. That sounds like a pretty rough sentence, doesn't it? Like, oh, we're taking refuge in something which is absolutely guaranteed to fail. Right? That's, not very, that's not that great. Right? But what's our alternative? I mean, we don't have any, anything else to, to take refuge in. So, of course, we're going to take refuge in our families and our friends and our, our accomplishments and our experiences because that's what we've got. Right? It's the only thing that has any hope at all of giving us even a little bit of happiness, even if we recognize that it's... It can't last. It doesn't mean that we can let go of it. We're clinging to it for dear life, for heaven's sake. So the Buddha points out that if you take refuge in these things, then um, you'll keep engaging with them, you'll keep manipulating them, you'll keep trying to arrange them so that they keep bringing you some measure of happiness. And then when, you're, when they're finally taken from you by aging and death, um, there'll be a lot of suffering. You just can't hang on to them. When we recognize, oh, there's this suffering, right? When we wake up to the first noble truth that, good heavens, this, this life that we experience as a human being is characterized by unsatisfactoriness. There's this unsatisfactoriness, and I can't seem to find a way out of it. Does anybody else know a way out? If you just ask a random person, they'll probably give you, point you back towards the usual things, you know, accomplishment, maybe maybe things that seem more selfless, like serving others, um, doing good for society, uh, setting a good example. But again, the mind can grasp at these things, and it can't hold on to them, and they don't. They can't provide a lasting matrix of ongoing contentment, peace, and happiness, because we invest ourselves in them, and they don't always work out the way that we want. How many do-gooders have you ever met that have been burned out? by their, 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 their attempts to make the world a better place by doing good. It's very common, right? The, the world is kind of is what it is, and you can 
uh, you can take someone who's a has mental illness and is a drug addict, and you can give them a shave and a shower and a new pair, of, new set of clothing, but you don't you don't actually solve his problems. In a way, he has to solve his own problems. All you can do is help remove obstacles, but you can't make anybody happy. You can hardly even make yourself happy. Right? So it's 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 a difficult project. But so the Buddha is saying, okay, there's this conundrum of suffering. You've realized that suffering is kind of problematic, and you've decided to look for some way out. The way out isn't to reject all those things that you were clinging to. It's not to sort of like try to get away from them, try to strip your life down to just squatting in a, uh, you know, in the desert someplace with a loincloth and a glass of water and just waiting for death, right? Try to like make the world go away somehow. All that does is lead to rebirth. There's, that, that's not a way out. Right? It's another kind of grasping by rejecting. So what the Buddha is saying is, is don't, you don't need to reject those things. What you need to do is stop seeing them as your only refuge. Right? As the only, like, as a, stop seeing them as a safe place to invest your hopes and dreams. See them for what they are. Right? They're sources of pleasure. They're sources of responsibility. They're sources of, of, of living a, a good human life. But they're not a refuge. What is a refuge, however? He's saying, is this triple gem, the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha. Oh, that sounds kind of self-important, doesn't it? <laughs> right? Here's my deal. You should, you should take refuge in me. But that's, to see it that way is kind of to misunderstand it. Um, this, this notion, triple gem, uh, is a little subtler than just like these three things that you should take refuge in if you're a good Buddhist. The, the idea of a gem is like something which is um, recognized as valuable by all who see it clearly. Okay. Um, you know, dogs can look at a gem and they won't see anything valuable. But even uh, a child seeing a gem, seeing its symmetry and its perfection and its, its lovely color, will be delighted by it. But a chicken won't. A chicken might a little bit. <laughs> you might want to peck at it because it looks like something cool. Um, but but the idea of a triple gem, not just a single gem, not just like three separate gems in three different boxes, but a triple gem, a gem that has like you could say three different aspects to it or three different lobes maybe, is um, something the Buddha is saying you can take refuge in it. You can count on this triple gem. It's it's durable. It's worthy. It, and it results in happiness, secure happiness, that isn't subject to the vicissitudes of, of the changing world. And what, are the, what is this triple gem? Right, well, it's, traditionally we say it's the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha. What do we mean by that? Buddha is a word that the Buddha did not use for himself very much. He usually referred to himself as the Tathagata, the, the one thus gone. Or the one who went that away, right? uh, or the one who who went in the in that particular modality, the one who has transcended the world, the one who's come to know the world and has understood it deeply, and so he's he's left the world by by understanding it. He's transcended. He's awakened. The word Buddha uh, means awake. So. 
we're not taking refuge in a historical personage. We're not taking refuge in the rupa behind me, the image. We're not taking refuge in the idea of Gotama, the Sakyan clansman, who became this historical figure that we call the Buddha. Some people who misunderstand this, that's what they're taking refuge in. They think that the Buddha is going to somehow protect him uh, from his mystical palace in Nibbana land, right? But the Buddha never talked about like a mystical palace in Nibbana land that he could protect people from, that he could sort of issue forth a, a protective spell to protect them from suffering. But what he did say is that awakening is the way out of this dilemma of the suffering of the world in our own lives and for anybody who wants out. So we're taking refuge in the principle, the possibility, the potent possibility in each one of our hearts to penetrate the mystery, come to understand what's really going on, and awaken our own minds to the truth. When we take refuge in the awakening, that's where we're placing our bets. That's where we're putting our energy. That's where we're uh, that's the thing that we're kind of counting on to make a difference, right? To make a difference in birth, aging, and death, sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief, and despair. We know from experience that ordinary life and all the seeming refuges that it seems to offer, family, friends, etc., they're nice, but if you take refuge in them, boy, it's going to hurt, right? If you're, if you're counting on them to save you from suffering, it's not going to work. There's going to be suffering. But awakening uh, allows you to have all your family and friends and s still be happy. Have all the things that go wrong and still be content, still be at ease. Not have the mental suffering that you're subject to when you don't have this refuge. So what is he called a triple gem? If, if, if Buddha is awakening, what does that mean for Dhamma and Sangha? Well, the Buddhists often said that he said a couple of times that one who sees the Dhamma sees me, sees the Buddha. And one who sees the Buddha properly sees the Dhamma. What, there's, what, what he's talking about is, you could say, that, uh, it's sometimes called the vision of the Dhamma. It's the truth of the way things really are rather than the way that we imagine them to be. So it's the... Um, it's the you could say the, the, the practice, the real-time experience of the awakened mind that we potentially can experience. So Dhamma is sometimes said to be the doctrine of the Buddha, the teaching of the Buddha, um, that which was well expounded by the Buddha, and it definitely counts for that too. But the whole purpose of the doctrine is to awaken the mind. So again, it's kind of another aspect, you could say, of awakening. Awakening itself, this practice that leads to awakening, and then there's the Sangha. Those who have who have actually carried out the practice and are awakening or are pursuing awakening. Right? This community of practitioners is the only thing that makes the Dhamma real. Right? Without someone who's actually doing it, the Dhamma is just words on paper. But when someone actually does it, the Dhamma is a real thing. It's an actual experiential human institution that you can participate in, you can become part of, you can be on the team, like the awakening team. You are on the awakening team. 
And so the Buddha doesn't exist without the Sangha. It doesn't exist, or Buddha awakening doesn't exist without without practitioners who are experiencing awakening. If if any one of these three aspects of the triple gem were to somehow vanish, the whole thing vanishes, right? So it's not really three separate things. It's three different facets of the same thing, right? And we can focus our attention on each one of those and get something out of it. Participating in the lived human community of awakening practitioners, coming to understand the doctrine that leads to awakening, the principle of awakening itself and the Buddhist example of it, these are all worthy of your attention and worthy of your pursuit because they lead to what? Awakening, the transcendence of suffering in the midst of all this birth, aging, and death. So that's why we go to refuge. That's what the Triple Gem is all about. Um, And the reason that we pay homage to it is basically just to remind ourselves of what we're here to do. So I often like to say that when you sit down to meditate, the first thing to do is remember what you're here to do, why you're here and what you're supposed to do. You're here to pursue awakening. You're here to take refuge in the triple gem. You're here to actually be part of the Sangha by practicing. The Sangha doesn't exist without practice. So um, our practice is our way of taking refuge and our paying homage and all the rituals that we do and having Buddha rupas, um, these are just ways of kind of helping us keep it in mind, keep it close to our awareness so we don't lose track and get distracted by all the other things that, that the world has to offer. And we're just kind of taking advantage of this psychological principle that whatever's right in front of your face, that's where your attention tends to go. So if you keep the Buddha right in front of you, then you know, you're, you're likely to pay attention to it. So you use, use every trick in the book to keep yourself on track. Okay. Those are all great questions. And there's a few left here. Uh, We'll save those for later. Maybe take a quick stretch break, and then we'll spend the rest of the period doing a little meditation. Sadhu, <laughs>